Alright, so let's type lecture three, introduction to Sophocles, Athenian tragedy, and Oedipus King lines 1, 2, 461, slides 47, 267. Today, let us begin now. Alright, we have met Oedipus, we have seen him at Thebes, and we know that he is the king of the Thebans there. We know also that a plague has afflicted them. A plague that we will learn today was sent by Apollo, sent by Apollo because of the uh because a, a crime, a murder, was unavenged. There is blood still lying on the ground, at least to the side of gods, in Thebes, that must be avenged. Uh, some crime is unsolved. Some evil deed is unpunished. And so we see Oedipus. We meet him. He addresses the, the, the people as children. And, uh, well, let's go from there. So, the people in the form of the chorus. Uh, the chorus is technically a chorus of Theban elders in this text. They are talking now to Oedipus, who has come down the stairs and has descended to be amongst the common folk to talk to them about the plague. And uh, he reveals that he knows that there has been a plague. He has not been caught as a man asleep. And so it is time for him to spring into action. And, well, so this chorus says, wow, you defeated the Sphinx, and a god must have aided you. It, it would be better for you to rule a city full of men, not an empty one. So save us one more time, Oedipus. And just to repeat the story of the Sphinx, when Oedipus, as a traveling vagabond, essentially a wanderer, having left his home of uh, Corinth with his parents Merope and Polybus, who were king and queen there, uh, thinking that he would live out a terrible uh, fate if he left there of killing his father and lying with his mother, which he did not attempt, which he did not want to do. Well, remember that he left. There And he went on a journey. And on his way to Thebes, he ran into an old man whom he happened to kill. But at the gates of Thebes, he ran into a sphinx. And a sphinx is, uh, you've seen sphinxes before, probably in your history books when you look at ancient uh, Egypt. They are lion-bodied creatures with the heads of women's, women. And they are a mythological creature like the chimera. Uh, they are themselves hybrid creatures like Gerion as well, and harpies and furies. All, Many uh, centaurs and minotaurs as well. Many hybrid creatures in the Greek mythology, uh, in their pantheon, so-called. In any case, what this sphinx would do is it would stand outside the seven gates of Thebes. Thebes is known to have seven gates. It's called seven-gated Thebes, and there are seven who fight against Thebes, which will happen actually after Oedipus, um, but before Antigone, uh, which is an instigating event of Antigone. In any case, um, the sphinx would ask travelers a riddle. And if these travelers did not answer the riddle correctly, then it would eat them. And so the, this was a high-stakes sort of game. And the question that it would ask is, what well, goes on four legs in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening? And Oedipus is the only person or the first person to have answered that correctly. He said that the answer is man. Because man crawls on all fours as a child, the morning. And then walks upright on two legs in the afternoon as an adult. And then goes long on three with their two legs and cane as an old man, and so the Sphinx supposedly killed itself, or died, and uh, Thebes was relieved of this terrible, terrible, terrible blight. And so they made Oedipus king, because their king had just died uh, very recently before that, and gave him their queen as wife. And so Oedipus, in their eyes, is like a superhero, having accomplished a feat no one else could possibly have achieved. He is like the person everyone wants to be at this moment, or so, so they think, in any case. Um, Oedipus, like I told you, then addresses the crowd as children and says that, you know, I've known about this sickness. I wasn't caught as a man of sleep. I, uh, I, as a man of sleep. This means that he is conscious 
of the situation. He even makes a big claim, and sometimes there's a word that you must know, and I'll write it on the board here. It's hubris. It, it, it's an untranslated Greek word. It essentially means overweening arrogance. Overweening arrogance. That means extremely cocky in our modern part. Parlance. So sometimes this is seen as a humble thing to say. Sometimes this is seen as a hubristic thing for him to say. It depends on the scholar. But he says, he claims that each sick person, people who are actually afflicted by plague physically, feels but one sickness. But he feels each citizen's sickness himself. And so uh, I think there are at least two ways to interpret this quote. One is that he's being very honest and that he actually believes that his emotional pain at the sickness of those under his care uh, is worse than actually feeling the pain itself. That he, like a parent, uh, that he actually does feel a paternal relationship to his people. And that when they are sick, he actually feels sort of worse than they do. Another way to look at it, however, is that he is arrogantly or hubristically calling these children um, sick, observing the fact that he is not sick, and um, suggesting that even though they are physically accosted and will physically be pain with their lives, those who are unhealed, by the plague, that he he uh, feels that he feels still worse himself, even though obviously his health is not in um, question at the moment. Though I, I I think even as I describe these two ways of looking at the situation, that the former interpretation is the one that I'm more persuaded by, at least at the moment. In any case, what is it that uh, Oedipus has done, um, uh, indicating that he is not asleep? Well, he has a brother-in-law. His brother-in-law is named Creon. Creon is the brother of his wife, Jocasta. He has sent Creon to the temple of Apollo so that Apollo, the god of prophecy, can uh, send back word on what must be done in order to uh, get rid of this plague because it is likely the case that Apollo is sending this plague because Apollo is the god of plague. And well, something you will have noticed about the sense of motion and time in a play is that since it is uh, performed all in one setting, things have to happen very fast, very, very quickly. And so we hear about Creon, and then immediately Creon approaches, and he enters the stage. All right, Creon, he's here. He enters with news from the Pythian temple. And so it's interesting. Sometimes um, uh, Apollo is called the Pythian or Pythian because he defeated a dragon called Python, which is why modern pythons are called pythons, those large snakes that live in Florida. Um, and he is also called the Delian because of, uh, he was, he was um, uh, born on the small island of Delos. In any case, Oedipus predicts good news and uh, from Creon's bright face. And he really does have an optimistic, a positive way of looking at things. Uh, his, his positive attitude will very much be tested during the course of this text, um, especially given the fact that unthinkable things will uh, will happen to him, or he will realize have happened to him, sort of indicating that for a human, your actions are symbolic. Sometimes you don't even know uh, the full impact of the things you've done until after you've done them, and then you only feel the impact of what you have done after you realize it. Like you say, perhaps you kill someone on the road, and that turns out to have been your father, and it turns out that you have lived out a prophecy that you were running away from, and in the moment of realization, everything about you and everything in your life changes. In any case, Creon's news is not just good. It is good and bad at best. So, uh, what's the good part? Well, there's a solution to this problem. That's very good. Well, what's the bad part? Uh, well, the solution demands exile or blood for 
The plague comes from an unavenged murder. And something you should know about exile at this time is that when you were sent outside of the city, it's very hard to find food, find lodging, find uh, protection from various bandits that live in the outskirts of a town. Being exiled was essentially like being executed over a longer amount of time than simply being having your head cut off or to be hanged or, or, or any of the other number of ways we can kill you fairly instantaneously. So exile was essentially like death as well. It wasn't like nowadays where you can just go from San Diego to San Francisco or something like that. Like the next city over was not a guarantee that you would actually get there. Um, in any case, what, who is unavenged? Well, the person that's unavenged happens to be the former king of Thebes, which I think might make Oedipus a little bit nervous given the fact that he's the new king of Thebes. And his name was King Laius. And so Oedipus begins to question Creon on the details. King Laius, this, I didn't know about this. Where, where did the murder happen, he asks. Was it here in the city that he was killed? Unthinkable. Or out in the country? And he finds out, well, uh, King Laius was out on an embassy. He was away from home. Oedipus says, and you can see he's sort of like a detective here. He's asking very good Odysseus-like questions. Well, did anyone survive to tell the tale? And he's told, well, yes, yes, one person um, survived. Uh, but he claimed that there were many robbers. Um, and so, just to let you know, the retinue of the king, it was King Laius, and he had four uh, supposedly servants, and there was a fifth person, too, uh, who, who happened to be a shepherd, but he was out on that mission with them, uh, apparently serving King Laius. We'll have to think about that. Um, now, here's the first time that a, uh, an untruth, a lie, is going to upset our direct interpretation, or, or our direct line to the truth. This one person who survived the killing of King Laius claimed, in order to save face, that many people ambushed King Laius, as well as uh, the guards. And these many people, and you can see why the, such a person would lie, these many people then killed King Laius and they robbed him. And this one man happened to escape. Far less, uh, he seems far less a coward if many people attacked and killed the king, rather than one person attacked the, the king and the servants, and then he did not stand against that one person. And so, um, this, is, uh, this is the first of uh, a couple lies that we're going to have to work our way through as we move towards the truth. In any case, Oedipus continues to ask, wasn't this treachery? How could a robber kill a king? Did somebody set this up? Did somebody have some vested interest in killing the king? Did somebody have something to gain? Treachery is treason. Treason is when you are traitorous towards somebody. To be traitorous towards somebody means to betray them. You can even see that word trait in betray. Um, it's like a re... Uh, oh, man. It's interesting. That be and that tray together, it's like something that continues to happen over and over or, or moves in on itself. Uh, in any case, Creon says, well, um, King Laius died right before you showed up, and he was out in the country from which you came, um, but... The reason why we didn't think so much about uh, what caused the death of this king is that there was a sphinx, and we were thinking about how to deal with the riddling sphinx, and instead of uh, the practical problem of the dead king, we were focused on a different issue at that time. And so, even though it seems sort of unthinkable that we would not have looked into the reason for the death of our king, the reason is that we had actually a more pressing problem at that time. And so now is the appropriate time to actually open this case to consider what happened to that king. And so Oedipus says this, whoever he was that killed the king 
may readily wish to dispatch me with his murderous hand. So helping the dead king, I help myself. I really want you to read this with this sense of dramatic irony. Remember, dramatic irony is when we know what's happening, but the characters in the story don't. Look at what he's saying through the lens of dramatic irony. Whoever he was that killed the king, that happens to be Oedipus, may readily wish to dispatch me with his murderous hand. May want to kill me. Perhaps that is true, that he will want to kill himself at some point. And so helping the dead king, I help myself. And I, I wonder if that is true, that he will actually be helping himself by figuring out the truth here. And we're really going to have to think about that, because actually as he learns the truth, it will ruin his reputation and in a way ruin his life, but it will uh, also get rid of the plague. In Thebes. So if he actually does care about his people as children and cares about them more than he cares about himself, perhaps he will ultimately get what he wants, but even at his own expense. We're going to have to think very deeply about this story. This is why it is considered one of the great tragedies, because it is not simple, because it is not straightforward. He says then again, we see him repeat calling these, um, these townspeople children, which could be seen as a denigration, it could be seen as a term of affection, we'll have to determine for ourselves what we think. Come, children, take your suppliant vows and go. Up from the altars now. Call the assembly and let it meet upon the understanding that I'll do everything. God will decide whether we prosper or, it should say, or here, remain in sorrow. And so again, one of those elements of potential hubris. He doesn't say, I'll do something he says, I'll do everything, indicating that the seat of power, that the seat of understanding, that the only person that can do something is Oedipus. He seems to be, in some way, this is a psychoanalytic term, inflated by his former success. He seems to think, because he was once successful in alone uh, defeating the Sphinx, that he can alone be successful in this endeavor as well. In fact, there's actually a very funny um, uh, sort of philosopher, he works at NYU, and he used to be a, a pit trader named Nassim Tlaib, and he, he talks about issues with human thinking, that humans often think just because something has gone right every time that they've ever done it, say like every time you ever uh, trade a stock you make money, that the next time that you trade a stock you'll make money. He considers this a flaw of thinking, that it is only out of habit, and David Hume actually long before him says the same thing as a modern philosopher, uh, I think it was the 17th century that he wrote. It could have been the 18th as well. Those, uh, those Brits sort of run together, him, John Locke, and uh, Thomas Hobbes for me at times. Uh, not my main interest of study. In any case, the idea seems to be this. Just because you have been successful before with all the challenges you have run into, does that mean that you will definitely be successful in the future? And obviously, as a human, you know the answer is what? No, because eventually, your goal will be to stay alive, and what will happen? with everybody. You will die. Well, that's right. That's right. And so things will not always be as they once were. And so I want you to notice that small error there in uh, Oedipus' thinking alongside the lie. It, it doesn't take much error, much falsity, much false making in order for somebody to have an unclear picture of reality, of the situation itself, of what's actually happening. So is Oedipus suggesting that he will do here what the gods have not? God will decide whether we prosper or remain in sorrow. As he's suggesting and saying, I'll do everything that only he can help. Is this hubris? Is this arrogance? And uh, is this the hubris of the rational intellect, I say? The rational intellect is the part of your mind that can figure things out. Syllogisms, it does math. It figures out that if not A, then or 
if, if not B, if not C, then A. Or if A and not B, then uh, it could be C. That's sort of a rational reasoning. We're not going to talk a lot about that. In any case, uh, sometimes uh, the claim is made that since humans can think, they think they can think through everything or solve every problem. And potentially that's the case, but it will not be the case here with Oedipus. The chorus speaks. The chorus moves as it speaks. First one way, which is called the strophe, and you must know these three terms. The chorus's turn of thought is then reflected in a counter motion. So they go to one side of the stage, so that's called the strophe, and then they walk over to the other side, that's called the antistrophe, which is a counter turn. You turn, then you counter turn. And then often, but not always, uh, this movement is completed with an ipode, an epode, where they come to the middle of the stage and then deliver their verdict or uh, where their thought has brought them. This chorus here calls for hope. Hope because Oedipus is on the case. Because someone is thinking, someone is acting on this problem and it takes somebody acting on a problem in order to find a solution for the problem, though the solution may not be what that actor intends for it to be. Um, obviously Oedipus thinks that in solving this problem he will be greater glorified, he will be a greater king. He will be even happier, and his people will exalt him even more. And yet, that is not what it will take to solve this particular problem. It will take uh, much more. Uh, you might want to see Oedipus, if you're an Old Testament scholar, as very Jovian. Very like Job, if you've ever read or heard of the, uh, the book of Job. It's a man that sort of loses everything. He loses his family, loses his home, loses his friends, loses his health. Um, uh, but, but that story ends a little bit differently from this one. In any case... The chorus first supplicates Athena, then Artemis, and then Apollo. It calls them the three averters of fate. says that the land is cursed, which we know, and says, Deliver us, O golden daughter of Zeus, that's Athena, and then begs Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, and even Dionysus, the god of uh, wine and frenzy, for help against the war god Ares, as if the plague is here embodied as inner turmoil or conflict, as if Ares himself is committing a war not on Thebes as a, a body politic, but on their bodies itself, as if a plague or a sickness is like Ares trying to conquer your body uh, from the inside out, rather than the outside in through the weapons of strangers. Uh, which I think is a very interesting idea in any case. Oedipus then betrays his misunderstanding. At first, he separates himself from the incident. He says, well, I, I was a stranger here in Thebes before the murder happened. Before the murder happened. Not quite right. He says, and so I will charitably solve a riddle in which I am not involved at all. And yet he is, he is at the center of this riddle. He is the key to this riddle. He's not only the key, but the key holder. And so uh, he, he has a dual function within this riddle. Well, and a tri, a tri function. He's actually the, he will be the solution, but also he is the problem itself. And so, just as he thinks he did with the Sphinx, he will tr attempt to solve this problem with a very different outcome. So, he commands the people to cast the murderer out of their homes if they know who he is. He speaks very boldly here. Um, so, I stand forth a champion of the God. And uh, perhaps he is a champion, perhaps he is a sacrifice. There. It's sort of hard to know exactly where you are and what's coming for you as a human in this world, and particularly in a, uh, a piece of drama that Sophocles has written. And so, he perhaps is more a sacrifice than a champion, and yet still you see that pride. 
You see that arrogance. He is a champion. Not only a champion, but a champion of a what? A God, no less. And so, he curses the murderer to misery and doom. An interesting curse, because obviously, who is he cursing? He is cursing himself. And if he lives with my knowledge, at my hearth, let me be cursed. And uh, Perhaps, perhaps. And if Oedipus is cursed, would this suggest that he did have knowledge? And then here, again, I suggested to you one psychoanalytic term earlier. Um, psychoanalysis is a uh, branch of psychology that is often used to interpret literature that started in the 19th century under generally considered uh, Sigmund Freud. It was pushed forward by his students Alfred Adler in the 20th century as well as, uh, I think even better, by Carl Jung, who uh, changed the name of psychoanalysis to analytical psychology. Now, why I mention that is one way to read this poem is like this. Freud came up with a concept called the Oedipal Complex. And we will see the literary basis for that within this text. Um, in fact, it will be the case that Jocasta will at some point say, many are the times that men have lain with their mothers in their dreams. And so the idea of the Oedipal Complex is that in some way, a young male might have some um, feelings of attraction towards his mother that are natural, but of course because of society's restrictions, are very much forbidden, which creates quite a bit of dissonance in a young person. You're attracted to someone, and yet that it's gross that you're attracted to that person and you're not allowed to. And so this makes you feel maybe uh, perhaps unclean or gross yourself. It creates a negative emotion. And so why I bring up that idea is I wonder if with Oedipus this is lurking at the back of his mind. Is it the case that the entire time he is investigating who the murderer is and what has happened, he senses that it could be him himself? Is he willfully being daft? Even though he is looking into this murder, is he still thinking perhaps it is him while wishing it was not him that did this all at once? Is he working against himself? And is this something that humans regularly do? I need to get the dishes done, but I hate my parents and I don't want to do anything for them. So what is it that I'm supposed to do in this situation? Or, you know, I want to get a hit on the baseball team, but I really dislike my coach and I want to punish him. Do I strike out or do I get a hit? This is a very complex situation in which you have uh, diverting motives. Um, and so I just bring this up to you just to, again, let you know just how deep not only this play is, but how deep a human is, whether you know it or not. In any case, I now hold Lias's office and wife, Oedipus says. He is, in this case, sort of a parody of a son or a, who is a prince who ascends to the rank of king naturally. Yes, yes, very interesting. I now hold Lias's office. Obviously, his office is uh, king and his wife, queen. Well, uh, Oedipus fights for his defense as a father, he says. And so, so why I say this is so interesting, again, this is very complex. Oedipus is now a king with a queen as his wife. This all seems very natural. And yet, the conditions under which he became a king are very un unnatural. He defeated the Sphinx, and the former king had been murdered. And then he married the murdered king's wife. Uh, another uh, level of complexity is obviously this fact. Uh, he is supposed to be king of Thebes, because he actually is the son of the man that he killed. And uh, the wife that he married was his mother, which he's not supposed to have done. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and so he has now achieved the rank that was his birthright, and yet the person who is his wife was never probably, or uh, by fate was supposed to be his wife, because as we know, he's supposed to lay with his mother according to the 
oracle at Delphi, uh, or excuse me, at Pitho in the Pythian oracle. Um, uh, however, it is not a. <laughs> it is not what he would have chosen had he had clear sight, and what he attempted to choose against by leaving Merope and Polybus. In any case, he curses those who do not obey him in his search and says, "Those who do not obey me, may the gods grant no crops springing from the ground they plow, nor children." to their women. So he continues to curse, to curse, to curse. If you know anything about this murder, and you are harboring this fugitive away from me, then I curse you. Turn him out. Release him to me. He thinks that this situation is going to be simple. He thinks that he can just flex some muscle, and that it will be solved. And he also happens to think that uh, he is in no way the cause of this circumstance. And so, the chorus suggests that Oedipus summoned Tiresias. Yes, Tiresias, the blind prophet that we saw in the underworld in book 11 of the Odyssey, who was then dead, because the Odyssey takes place uh, narratively after um, Oedipus, uh, well, he's still alive in these days. And this is where he made his fame, in the Oedipus myth as well as in the Antigone myth. We'll see him here in this play. We'll see him later in the Antigone play. And he does not often bring good news to the people who are summoning him. He will not bring good news here to Oedipus. In fact, he'll try not to give bad news, and yet he'll get upset and then we'll uh, reveal it. Uh, and then, he, uh, with Creon, he'll give him some very ugly news. Uh, spoiler alert, Creon will be the next king of Thebes uh, that we see, though technically it will be Oedipus' children after Oedipus. Something will happen that keeps Oedipus from remaining king at the end of this play. He will himself abdicate. In any case, Tiresias approaches. And uh, this image up here of Tiresias and the chorus and Oedipus, this is taken from the movie version of Oedipus that we will be watching. See how creepy they all are? It's very creepy hearing people talk in sort of a, an echoey way without seeing their lips move. There's just something about that that puts you into the uncanny valley. The uncanny valley is a place where something you see in front of you looks humanoid, uh, but not quite human. It's like how a doll looks, or an android. It looks, uh, it looks almost right, but just not quite right, and it makes you sort of uh, it gives you this sense of eerie. It's like if I was looking at you right now, and I'm like, are you a doll? Are you a human? I don't know! Ah, in any case, Tiresias approaches. He has not eyes, but in his mind, he knows with what a plague our city is afflicted. Tiresias is not so happy to be there. He claims his wisdom brings him no profit. Is it the case that the truth can hurt? Is this why so many choose the gate of ivory over the gate of horn? He even asks to be uh, allowed to go home. What does this mean that a prophet who can only speak the truth says that his wisdom brings him no profit and that he wants to go home? He must have some bad news to give to somebody he does not want to give it to. Recall Calchas in Book 1 of the Iliad. I, there is something that I know, but I don't want to share it because sometimes when you share things that kings don't like to hear... Bad things happen to you. If you remember Achilleus was there, there is no Achilleus here. He said, don't worry, even if it's Agamemnon that you're speaking against, I will keep him from harming you. Uh, apparently these prophets, they, they don't like to give bad news to power. Uh, for potentially very good reason. In any case, Oedipus becomes flustered by this. He's very surprised. He, he, he would think that Tiresias would come here to help him. To him, again, the situation is very straightforward. There was a murderer here. He was not investigated. Because of, <clears throat> because of the presence of the Sphinx. And so now it's time to find him. And so this murderer is probably still in the city. And if um, Tiresias just tells him who the murderer is, he can go find him, execute him, or exile him, and then the plague will be gone. He thinks Tiresias is trying to protect someone. 
trying to protect someone that potentially uh, wants something of Oedipus's and wants to keep Oedipus from the truth. And yet, uh, there is, again, more to the situation than Oedipus can see. You rob us of your gift, your gift of prophecy? Oedipus asks Tiresias, and Oedipus begs Tiresias to say what he knows. And Tiresias hints that he knows something that Oedipus does not want to hear. Which is uh, very contrary to what Oedipus thinks in this moment. He says, how could I possibly not want to hear what it is you have to say? I definitely want to know who the murderer is. I want to punish the murderer. And then I want to uh, get this plague out of my city. What do you mean? He starts to think that Tiresias is lying. Tiresias even claims that he is sparing Oedipus pain, but Oedipus calls Tiresias a villain and said, you would provoke a stone, you're, just, you're talking around what it is you know, and he keeps suggesting that I don't want to know what you know, but I keep telling you directly that I do want to know what it is you know, so reveal to me what you know. And yet, uh, Tiresias and Oedipus' tempers continue to flare, and I really should read that to you, we'll read that during the seminar. At some point, they continue to barb at each other, insult each other, trying to provoke each other. And what Oedipus is attempting to do is to provoke Tiresias into telling him the truth. And what Tiresias is trying to do is to defend himself against an unjust attack by a man he is trying to spare uh, the feelings of. And yet, uh, uh, with anger, often we are not as rational as we otherwise would be. And so Tiresias, over and over again, insists that Oedipus does not want to know the truth. In this way, again... Looking uh, to the psychological, Tiresias seems to represent Oedipus' own unconscious doubts about the legitimacy of his intentions and possibly also about the legitimacy of his rank. Perhaps it is the case since he is a tyrant rather than a, uh, um, an officially uh, a royal-blooded king that he has doubts about whether his position is legitimate or not, whether he uh, deserves to be where he is. And this Tiresias is uh, the nagging doubts within him about uh, what it is he had to do to get where he is. Perhaps Tiresias also represents uh, Oedipus's uh, mounting knowledge that perhaps he is not so absolute from this situation. Perhaps he is uh, a part of this situation. Perhaps he is even essential to this situation. Because there are things that Oedipus can think of that are in his mind that might link him. There was already, we know, a murder that happened out on the countryside. Oedipus himself knows that he has killed a man out on the countryside. Perhaps this is the beginning of doubt in his soul. In any case, does he really want to know the truth no matter what? And when you say no matter what, you should really consider uh, the story of Oedipus. Because he will learn the truth, and it will drastically alter the, his life. In fact, he will turn from a very proud sort of comic character into a uh, very humiliated, tragic character uh, very quickly, all at once. Would he give up everything for it? His family, his rank, his fame, his eternal name? Because, of course, Oedipus now does not mean great glory in our culture, but rather um, sort of a, a, sickening, uh, a sickening fate that can never be, uh, that cannot be, uh, a sickening fate that cannot be altered. Would, would he even give up his destiny? And so I say here that Oedipus is a play about pushing limits. The limits of human suffering. We will see tremendous suffering in this play. Uh, often self-caused. Uh, often caused by truth as well. True, uh, truth can cause, obviously, very great suffering. Uh, the limits of outrage. We're seeing that already here. And what is the function of outrage? What does it mean even to be angry? 
with someone else, and what is it that it accomplishes to vent your anger at them. Uh, the limits of pompous hubris. Again, I'm sort of backing off this point, but recall, Oedipus calls his people uh, uh, children. He says that he alone will solve everything, that he is a champion of the god. He is obviously not uh, humble at this point. He is a fairly proud, confident individual. And then the limits of dramatic tension between the stage and the audience. Obviously, we can see the noose sl slowly tightening around Oedipus's neck. We can see the light starting to dawn in his eyes long before he can see it himself, or long before he allows himself to see it. Because again, recall that level that we're reading this at. Is it, or at, is it the case that he can start to see, that he is already starting to see, that he is part of this drama, and is just not allowing himself to? Is he looking outside for a problem that he knows comes from within? And so, Oedipus continues to belittle and insult and threaten Tiresias, lines 365 to 461. This will take us to the end of our lecture today. Oedipus was the one who sent for him. So now he claims this. Since you have come to see me, and since you are unwilling to reveal to me the things that you know, it must be the case that you and Creon are colluding so that you can, in some way, um, indemnify me, um, make me look to be a criminal, so that Creon can then become king because he has a blood, uh, he has a blood claim on the throne. Um, uh, it is only the case that Oedipus happens to be the king because he has married the former queen who is the sister of Creon. It is potentially the case that Creon could make a claim that he deserves the throne, seeing as he actually has royal blood running through his veins and is the male successor or the male... Um, hmm, how should I put this? No, 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 no. So since Creon is the uh, sibling of Jocasta, he has royal blood, uh, whereas, at least so far as people think, Oedipus does not. So it is possible that he has a claim on the crown, though potentially weaker than Oedipus is at the moment. All that said, uh, why would Tiresias collude with Creon? Perhaps Creon has offered Tiresias something that he wants, something like gold or concubine, who knows, something like that. Oedipus doesn't know, and yet he's, he's fabricating excuses. He's making up reasons why somebody might want to lie to him. So that uh, uh, these are fabrications that will keep him from seeing the truth. And so again, that psychological element. Is that what we do? Even when we have the truth in front of us, do we try and come up with alternative explanations in which a more pleasant uh, truth might be true? And the, I think the answer is obviously yes. Who stole the cookie? Not me. Oh, what happened? Oh, uh, uh, there was a pig that was flying and it flew through and it ate it, but it didn't leave any crumbs because it was magical. It's like, okay. Uh, that's a fairly obfuscating thing to say to people. In any case, so Tiresias slowly lays out the situation, revealing key information. And so this is called foreshadowing in drama and tragedy, tragedy where you lay out uh, the darkness that is to come. Your eyes will darken, he says. Remember that image that I, I showed you a little while ago? This one right here, which is the cover of uh, an addition with Oedipus with uh, those look like blood tears coming out of his eyes. And yet they are not tears. They are just blood coming out of his eyes. <laughs> it was Laius slain, and you are his killer. My goodness. Now, something to notice here is that since Tiresias is upset, with Oedipus and angry, and Oedipus is angry as well. It is the case that Oedipus can assume that, um, that can assume 
that Tiresias is speaking out of anger and not sharing truth, and yet Tiresias is sharing precisely the truth that Oedipus argued that he should share. He is sharing precisely the truth that Oedipus summoned him there to speak. And so Tiresias is doing as he was asked now. And he says, and you laid with your mother. This is the first time that Oedipus is hearing this sort of thing. This is the first time that a connection is drawn between him and the death of Lys, and between him and uh, Jocasta and, uh, as a, uh, in a different way. And also remember this. It is the case that, Tyrese, or that Oedipus knows a prophecy that led to him leaving his former home, which means you will kill your father and lay with your mother. And so he does not yet know that Lias is his father. He does not yet know that um, Jocasta is his mother. And yet he does know that he is now accused of killing a man and laying with that man's wife who happened to be his mother. And so it is the second time he has heard this sort of prophecy. What sort of effect that would have on you to hear that, I think we will see in Oedipus here. Oedipus disagrees. He's wrong, obviously. They both exit. Oedipus thinks Tiresias is a fool, saying crazy things to him out of, out of anger. And yet Tiresias exits knowing that Oedipus is a fool, leading towards his own personal destruction. That is the beginning of Oedipus the king. We have all the fun things, all the interesting things happening next time.